Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reup, a podcast covering the biggest news events of the week. I'm your host, Owen Blackwell, in the HuffPost Australia podcast studio with... I'm Tori McGuire. I'm the editor-in-chief. I'm Chris Payne. I'm the editor. And Josh Butler, associate editor. This week, The Donald. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is meeting President Trump in New York, his first face-to-face meeting since that phone call. Also, we're going to talk about the federal government's proposed controversial changes to university student fee structures. But we're going to lead off with something that's touched many Australians. The HuffPost Australia co-hosted a Stop Suicide Summit this week with Lifeline. Chris, this is a matter close to your heart, I know. Tell us about it and some of the things we learned at the summit. Yeah, it is a matter close to my heart. I lost a friend to suicide in 2015 and my brother's lost a friend and I've had other friends lose people. And at the summit itself, there was a show of hands and most hands in the room were up. People are touched by this. It's estimated that 85% of people know someone or uh, who's been touched by it, whether directly or indirectly. It's a huge problem. Uh, the last statistics we had were that 3,027 people each year take their own lives and the rate is as high as it's been in at least 10 years so it's a very complicated problem we don't have all the answers so the stop suicide summit the idea was to get business leaders primarily in a room and say okay we're all invested in people in this room hundreds of that you we employ hundreds of thousands of people Um, we come into contact with them for a large part of their weeks what ideas do we have that we can start to add to the list of ideas to to tackle this problem because it's so complicated and there are no there's no one answer. It was such an inspiring day, wasn't it? Because it's certainly the beginning of the conversation. It wasn't like we all got in a room and went, "Okay, we've got three hours. Let's solve solve suicide." But the unique thing about this event was um, driven by the vision of the CEO of Lifeline, Peter Schmeigel. He wanted. He wants to expand the conversation because every time there is a meeting about suicide or um, some kind of initiative, it's dominated by the mental health sector and the um, the sector that is involved in the, the experts. And he wanted to get people in a room who are responsible for literally hundreds of thousands of employees and say, you guys are problem solvers. This is the problem. What are you, what are you, we going to do about it? And... Interestingly, a lot of the conversation centred around the really pointy end of the crisis management, like identifying people who are, who are um, at risk of imminent suicide and what to do about that. I think that going forward, um, he got a commitment from everyone in the room to keep coming back to this same table and continuing the conversation and pledging to work together. Um a discussion about the root causes and what's happened in society that has meant that despite the fact that we've got all this um, amazing mental health support, an exponential increase in the prescription of mental health mental um, health drugs, um, the, the suicide rate is not coming down. And one of the really interesting stats out of the day was that for every suicide, it's estimated that more than 130 people are directly impacted by it. Mm-hmm. Family, friends, colleagues, people who are involved in the investigation. And um, so it, it's 3,000 people. I mean, I think it's a staggering number of people. In the grand scheme of things, may not sound like that much, but it's not just about the people who are dying. Yeah, two things really struck me from the discussion. One of them was that suicide is a lot more than just a mental illness problem. I've always 
probably thought of it more as a mental illness yeah, problem. Same, same. But there are so many other factors that can go into it, like you know, major life stresses. It's not just having a diagnosed mental illness that can necessarily contribute to this problem. So there's a lot broader way of thinking of it. And the other one was technology. It was a constant talk of technology and innovation because that's how we live our lives and how can we harness technology and innovation to improve suicide awareness and intervention. And also leadership too. So, you know, the people who were in the room were from very big companies or big industry groups and there was one really interesting story from the HR manager of a a huge retailer who employs more than 100,000 people. And at one point they had three members of staff commit suicide in a month, which was just horrifying. Um, Not an outlying statistic it's just by virtue of the fact that they're such a big company and the ceo of the company wrote a letter to all employees saying this has just happened um this is having an impact on all of us you need to know that i i am making this a priority and they saw a huge response to that letter all of a sudden people were walking up to their managers with the letter saying actually i'm in trouble Mm. um and the fact that the ceo had written that letter was enough for them to seek help and so this summit has ended with a commitment for everyone to come back to the table? Is yes. Correct? Yeah. And to also make recommendations um, to Lifeline about how they can work better going forward because there was a lot of feedback on the day that, you know, there's literally thousands of service providers in this sector mm. and they're all vying for money and attention. And I think that um, the people in the room recognise that if we're really going to tackle this, it needs to be a coherent approach and that they all need to get together yeah it can almost be a case of too too many options people get overwhelmed especially when there are points of of struggle and there needs to be a really clear pathway to get help and having all these options and there's this and that and doctors and all these organizations it can be a bit Mm. overwhelming so much of it is is trying to stitch all that stuff together as well like you say there are so many services and so many ways you can get into the health system or in the crisis you know referral system that sort of thing and so much of it is about just trying to get the right people talking to the right people at the right time and making sure that you know you don't fall between the cracks Mm. with this sort of thing is making sure that everyone's sort of on the same page and and talking to each other like you said there's so much there's so much out there and like i said it's almost a case of maybe there is maybe not not too much but you know that there is a challenge and making sure that everyone is on the same page. Yeah. And even not even people inside the sector, just people's friends. Because, mm. you know, the, the minority of people who commit suicide have a diagnosed mental illness. Exactly, yeah. But we say to people as soon as, you know, the, the rhetoric around Are You OK Day, which I think is a wonderful initiative, when people say, but I don't want to ask because what if they say no? The advice is to tell them to go to the GP. But the GP may not be the appropriate place to go. If, you yeah. don't, if you're not mm. ill... If you don't have something that can be treated with medication, why do you go to a GP? The thing we need to do is train all Australians in how to support their friends and family and colleagues so that when someone is struggling, if they reach out for help, they're not going to be left like yeah, responded look, to with a blank face and a panic look and, oh, God, what do I do now? And that's where I think everyone agreed in the room that technology can play a huge mm. role. What's one thing we all have? A phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where we can come in because we do a lot of coverage on this topic and we do a lot of hopeful coverage on this topic. So people share that. And so if we can get into people's, um, just into the back of their mind that there is something they can do, it might help. 
so much of it is just like early intervention as well. Like, you know, you look at, you go to like any sort of public place and like on the wall, there'll be that, that doctor ABCD thing of how, this is how you mm. do CPR. CPR and is a great you, example. Like, you know, I think most people wouldn't know how to do CPR or something like that. Maybe we need to have something like that. You know, here's what you do. If someone comes to you and they say they're not okay, like maybe you don't need to go to a GP. Maybe you just, here's three tips you can do. Here's mm. three things you can say to someone. Here's like three ways you can help them without, you know, going to a GP or going to a psychologist or whatever is a big thing for someone. Yeah, like yeah absolutely. They might not and it might not be the right thing. Yeah, and it might be the wrong, wrong might not be the right thing, but it might not be the right, like just, they might not feel comfortable. They go, oh, my problem's not that big. I'm, I'm just, I've broken up with my girlfriend or I've lost my job. I don't need to go to see a, a mm. doctor or a shrink or whatever it is. Like maybe we need to talk about here's some things you can do before that point to make people feel more comfortable yeah. about reaching yeah. out and, and looking for help. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's a long way to go, but it was very exciting to be a part of it. And we'll 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 be uh, we'll be staying on it as well mm. and part of so we'll definitely be hearing from it again. Politics now. Uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, he's off to meet the Donald. First face to face meeting since <laughs> that phone call. And we all remember the phone call. Um, what are we thinking? I mean, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, Turnbull might ask for certain things, more Marines in Darwin troop commitment to Afghanistan, uh, something involving China. I mean, are we expecting, Are we? what are we expecting out of this? Is it too? I think we're expecting a lot of excruciating, like back-slapping photos where both of them are trying to prove that the phone call was not as bad as everyone said yep. it was mm, and that totally. it's all Do you think Turnbull will get fine. a handshake? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it will probably you, get don't a, you don't know. He doesn't always give yeah. out handshakes. He might even get a hug. <laughs> <laughs> which would be very, very creepy. I wonder how that would play here. <laughs> the timing for Turnbull's terrible. I mean, the federal budget's on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's clearly, um, you know, we know he's a kite flyer, so we know that things get floated and then chucked out. And some of the things that have been floated in the last week had quite a big reaction. So Scott Morrison's kind of got the budget to himself at the moment. I mean, they always say it's gone to the printers, but really they can do whatever they want right Change up until Tuesday. Minute, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's all, It's very clear as well that Turnbull's fitting you with Trump. Trump oh. said, this is when I can have you. He's yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, because and there's no, way, there's no mean, way you would he's, schedule that he's, meeting. Is the most important political relationship yeah. with another leader that he could possibly have. So. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd be fascinated to owe to be a fly on the wall oh. in that conversation because... Trump keeps saying so many out there things about, you know, North Korea and China and Russia. And I'd love to know whether there are people in the room who walk him back on the spot or what he's actually going to say. And, you know, it'll leak because it always leaks. So at some point we'll find out what the conversation was. But what is Turnbull supposed to say? Is Turnbull supposed to try and talk him down himself from these... Outlandish positions. I don't think anyone expects Malcolm to kind yeah. of be there and be the one that's taken <laughs> Donald down. But it's like, come on, Donald. Yeah, no, I think Malcolm would just, um, yeah, I think he'll just sort of say whatever he has to say to kind of get Donald back on side. I think I think he'd be very happy if he got out of the meeting without another international incident on the front page. Do you yeah. reckon? Do you reckon Trump is going to pick back up where the conversation reportedly left off, which is uh, criticizing the dumb deal to take to swap refugees? Well, that, that's that's the million dollar question. I think we're all sort of talking about. Well, like you know, they've basically after that phone call, they basically said, "Look, we have to take these people." Mike Pence was out here the other week. He said that it's basically on. We don't know how many refugees they're taking. They could, from what's been reported, they could 
realistically take none. And they could just extreme yeah, vet them out, couldn't yeah, they? Yeah, they just they have to just mm. um, uh, you know vet them. They don't have to actually take in. They just mm. like at least consider some of them. So, you know, they could say, yeah, the deal's still on. We're going to vet them all. But look, none of them made the made the cut, unfortunately. So, Can't probably um, be able to resist another dig about it though surely no no I because so. from i can actually understand from his perspective why he thinks it's a dumb deal mm, yeah <laughs> yeah it, it was it was quite funny sort of like you watch donald trump but i've read a bunch of stories but it's sort of like he learns stuff as he sort of goes along and you were like he'll read something in a briefing book or he'll learn about it on tv and he'll go, this is just the worst thing ever and it's like well this happened months ago mm. years ago like what are you well after 10 minutes he realized the uh, whole north korea china thing is very complicated yeah, it's quite complicated yeah. Healthcare's is more complicated than anyone thought it was yeah. <laughs> he did admit he did admit in interview last week around his 100 days that he liked his old life and this whole being president of the United States the States thing is a lot harder than he realised. I'd love to know what he thought it was going to be. Yeah. Howard Stern, the US uh, shock jock who's quite good friends with Donald Trump uh, had some really interesting comments this week saying it was one of his, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically one of Donald's most honest moments. You know, he genuinely doesn't really want to be president. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's he wanted... To be fair, He's though, don't, you think, life, don't you think that would happen to anyone who became president of the United States? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. It would just be a shocking learning curve. I think you saw it yeah. on Obama's face during his, his uh, the day he got elected. Like, and he came out to give that speech and the shoulders were down. Like, He's like, oh, no, <laughs> like, it's, it's my mess it's now. <laughs> You've got to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> the one thing that Turnbull might bring up is trade. Because, you know, we were so all in on this big multilateral trade deal that Trump mm. sort of... Kai Bosch, you know, we, we need some certainty about what Donald Trump means when he says, you know, we're not going to import anything anymore. Yeah, he's shown some willingness to negotiate with, say, NAFTA. He was so gung-ho on, you know, poleaxing that deal, but he's actually gotten on the phone with, you know, Canada and Mexico and said, mm. okay, we can we can actually work on this. So, I don't know, maybe that gives us hope that he's actually going to examine these things in a sober light of day and give them a second thought. Just a last point on the Trump-Turnbull meeting. Any requests, should the president make uh, certain military requests of Australia, you know, more troops or or more technology on our ships or something like that? You know, there's a China factor here as well. I mean, China's watching what we're doing and would be asking, well, hold on, you know, uh, more troops in Australia. This And and also the cost. Yeah, yeah. I mean... We just we're just not in a position to afford a big ramping up of our mm. military spending. Mm. Mm. Not without slashing somewhere else. I mean, we'd have to slash our border patrol spending yeah. <laughs> to afford any increase in military spending and I just I don't know um that Turnbull's gonna be prepared to make that that compromise. Speaking of spending, budget next week. Mm. Uh uh, the, the government has talked about uh, uh, changes to universities' uh, fee structures, student fee structures. I mean, um, sorry, I'm going to start that again. Mm. <coughs> uh, big spending. Uh, next week, uh, the federal budget, uh, the government has proposed controversial changes to university student fee structures. I mean, how I, we're talking about students paying more for their, for their degrees. It hasn't been... This hasn't been swallowed well by the student uh, no, well, of course groups. Not. No, yeah. no. But I mean, what do we think of it? Is this is this a policy floater? Is it locked in? Is it seems pretty locked in? Yeah. yeah, it seems like it's 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 in. It's happened. It's it's kind of done. Like it, it'll have to go through the Senate and that sort of thing. And it's 
the early sort of indications are that it's not going to be well supported in the Senate, but like it, I don't think this isn't a floater. This is like this is what we're doing, sort mm. of thing. Yeah, right. Like it'll matter if it passes or if it doesn't pass, but like it, this is not one of those. Let's try super for a housing deposit. Oh no, we're not doing that anymore. I think this is like they've put out the papers, they've put out the tables, they've put out all the numbers and stuff. This is this is on. And politically, it's the least risky thing for them to do because. Can you imagine a sector of the Australian community least likely to vote for the coalition mm, than mm. university students? So I think it's easy for them. I, um, I'm concerned about the sort of inelegance of it. So cutting funding to the universities while um, educa- higher education is our third biggest export um, commodity, but the quality of degrees in Australia is been dropping rapidly because there is no cap on hex places. So okay. Julia Gillard lifted the cap. So now in first year and in any course, instead of having to try, you know, instead of the TER being um, a barrier so that they can keep the supply down or keep the demand down, um, now anyone can get into uni and on, on a subsidised um Sorry, not subsidised. Well, yes, subsidised and also borrowed fee structure. And they're literally letting too many people into the unis and they're devaluing the degrees because people are dropping out. The first year dropout rate is just phenomenal. Mm. And, you know, I worry that what we're going to be doing by that, by turning our unis into basically cheap degree shops to service the overseas sector, we're going to trash their reputation and... We won't continue to be the most sought-after place to send your kids from overseas to go to university for much longer if the quality of the degrees falls. And so by, A, not capping the number of hex places, but, B, pulling funding out of the university so that they can't afford to pay the right tutors and the right teachers and the infrastructure isn't as good, they're just going to devalue them as a as a product. Yeah. Well, the reason, the reason they're changing the fee structure is because essentially – People aren't paying the loans back quick enough mm. and you only start paying your loan back once you've got a good enough job to earn over the threshold, which I think is about 50-something thousand. Yeah, it's about 55 50-something thousand. Yeah, they yeah. change every year or whatever it is. They're but dropping like, it to 42 yeah, grand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, well, they're dropping it down to so far, so low. Like, yes, if you're, if you're earning that little amount, you'll only pay back, I think it's like $8 a week or something like mm. that. But but like you say, Tori, you know, if... if they had sort of capped those places a little bit. I'm not saying, you know, it should only be for elite students. I don't, I don't believe that at all. But, you know, if they had capped it a little bit more than they currently do, mm. like there wouldn't be that much money floating around out there. Like if you're getting a substandard degree from, you know, a, a less prestigious university, you're unlikely to kind of make a lot of money yeah. in the end of your life. You might never really earn over that threshold. Um, so if I'm not saying we should kind of cut back on uni and that sort of thing, but maybe we should sort of tighten up those eligibility requirements a little bit. Well, a lot of it's about the cultural rhetoric around university because for many decades, tertiary education in Australia was a way for to encourage social mobility. So because university was either for a while free or affordable, if you were smart and you could get yourself into university, you could um, have a career that was more lucrative and long-term than your parents' career. And now that is not going to be the case because these kids are coming out of university with degrees that mean nothing and don't actually help them get jobs. Mm. And But there's this idea that everyone should be able to go to university. University doesn't suit everybody. You know, what about excellent trades 
and what about excellent small businesses? Yeah, like and TAFE yeah. and stuff like that. Like they, got, they got yeah. out TAFE and, like, I know it's different levels of yeah. government, but, like, you know, we're underinvesting in the TAFE system. TAFE campuses yeah. are closing, that sort of thing. People, it's hard for people to get trades, for, like, not yeah. even, like, you know, not a, apprenticeships and stuff, but, like, trades. Here's how you become a stop-go mm. man or whatever it is, like, need to be some more investment in that sort of and area the, of education. The, the changing face of the workforce, for example, you can go to uh, do a course at General Assembly mm. and they'll train you how to code in three months. It's intensive, three yeah. months, and the job placement's really high. And you're highly so employable So that is going to be highly attractive to mm. someone else besides going to uni, which was the yep. more traditional path. I think this whole thing reveals the other side of this, which is that universities are a business. And yeah. one of the reasons they looked at pulling the funding is because the universities are making money. Mm. Their revenue is roughly 5% um, higher than uh, what students are paying. Mm. So they are making money. There are certain degrees which need more funding, but I think they're looking to mm. cut sectors so they can fund others. Is yep. Yeah. And there's so much to go around. And then two points on that, like, you know, the universities have come out this week and gone, oh, it's so hard. This is, it'll be terrible for uni students. We've got to pay it back, all that sort of stuff. These are the same university heads who supported uni fee deregulation. <laughs> um, yeah. And they, yeah. they didn't have any sort of um, quarrel, like sort of qualms about students paying more on that side of things. But now they're angry because this means that the government's going to take some of their money off them, which means that they need to start charging mm. students more. So under fee deregulation, they probably wouldn't have lost a lot of money. They would have been able to charge even more. And they had no problem sort of charging uni students more then. But now they're like, oh, the poor uni students. But number two, there hasn't really been a whole lot of outrage about this apart from uni you know, students unions and the Greens and that sort of thing. It's kind of and like Labor's kind of gone. But like we moved on to the public education thing the next day, school system and that sort of thing. Like you look at people were sort of some journalists were like, oh, you know, it's only a few hundred dollars extra a year to pay back uni fees. Like if we if the government came up with a policy that changed uh, energy prices tomorrow to go up by 400 bucks a year, the whole world would be on fire. Like this would this would not go down as simply as it mm. did. Um, but now because it's uni students to go, oh, you know, uni students are getting a free ride, he's entitled young. But like it's not. Like 400 bucks a year is a lot of money if you're starting out on you. Like for me, I'll be probably paying about that much extra a year. Mm. It's a lot of money. Like it's not a small amount. If 400 bucks a year for a pensioner, like that would go, that would not go down. Like people wouldn't, wouldn't swallow that. Yeah. But I think they... I think the government politically on this one is not going to have too much trouble, no. um, especially as the next day they turned around and announced exactly. an injection of funding into yeah. schools. And if you're looking at an equity argument, for the most good, like school, everyone has to go to school. And that is where, like if you get a crap education when you're in year five, mm. you're, you're never going to go to university. Um, you're going to spend your entire life at a disadvantage. Mm. And so... There is a greater equity argument for injecting funding into schools than there is into the tertiary sector. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, but the tertiary sector needs to get more focused. Like, if we are going to be this nimble, agile, Turnbull-esque economy that's, you know, where someone like Atlassian doesn't have to bring in all of their talent mm. from overseas because it's created here, then people need to be doing the right courses and the courses need to be good quality. And that has been the contradiction. Like, you know, we're hearing from Malcolm Turnbull, we have to be an innovative, agile nation. Um, go get a good job so you can buy, get yeah, a housing deposit. A um, you know, we need skilled workers in Australia because we're going to cut back on 457s. Like, why you're cutting back on uni, like making it harder for people to get a uni, people from lower socioeconomic mm. backgrounds. They're saying that, you know, changing the uni fees won't make poorer people reconsider uni. It definitely will. Like, it definitely will make people reconsider going to uni because it's more money you have to pay back at the end of your degree. Um, 
it's just these contradictions. We're saying we have to get a good job and be agile and have skilled workers, but at the same time, we're cutting back on uni place. We're cutting, you know, we're changing four sevens. We're, you know, not we're cutting back on penalty rates and that sort of thing. Like it's they don't stack up. They don't have a vision, do they? They just, it's just they're like they're approaching things, each little one in, the wall, as exactly, individual. Yeah, these little discrete sort of packages, yeah. and it's like, oh, but the thing you said last week. It's totally different to what you're saying this week. It doesn't fit in. It's exhausting, isn't it? Like, <laughs> like just pick a vision and stick with stick it. Stick with it. Like, <laughs> it's hard to keep up. Well, thank you very much to our guests today. I'm going to leave you with uh, a, a quote from President Trump who uh, thinks he may have the solution to the ongoing Israel-Palestine conflict. And let's see if we can find the solution. It's a uh, something that I think is frankly... Uh, Maybe not as difficult as people have thought over the years, but we need two willing parties. We believe Israel is willing. We believe you're willing. And if you both are willing, we're going to make a deal. <laughs> I, um, I had lunch last week with um, a fellow called Daniel Taub, who was an Israeli ambassador to the UK and has been involved in lots of negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, I guarantee that if there is a deal, it's not going to be made by Donald Trump. Yeah, it's, it's not going to be signed at Camp this is David. Not the sort of deal you make on The Apprentice. No. <laughs> but like, it, 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 it's like what I said before. Like he's sort of learning stuff as he goes along. It was same yeah. as like, oh, who knew China and North Korea's the relationship was so complicated? Who knew healthcare was so complicated? Yeah. It's like everyone, everyone knew it. Knew. It's just that you haven't read anything about it. Like yeah. it's like once you learn a bit about, oh yeah, the Israel-Palestine thing. Yeah, it's a bit of time there. Mm. Like. Yeah, he's learning so much as he goes. He promised so much for the first 100 days. He made it a big focus. And then he found out how hard the business of governing actually is. Couldn't execute any of his legislative agenda in the first 100 days. And then he's turning around going, why is everyone so obsessed with this 100 days thing? (laughs) These other internet trolls online, like they go, they say something and you go, well, that's wrong. They go, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) And he's like, even like a Wikipedia link. You go, oh, wow, I hadn't read that before. Well, maybe you should read about it before you start talking about it. Like... Thank you very much to our guests, Tori McGuire, Chris Payne, and Josh Butler. Don't forget to tune in next week for The Real.